The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. wisdom says anyone created by God is a child of God. But the Bible uses a rather specific designation and says the children of God are those adopted, as our text is going to say today, according to Jesus Christ and his salvation and adoption. Let's listen to that text as I read Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. We've addressed this text already and have a couple more times to look at it, I noticed as I was reading it this morning in the other service that even though I'm reading it in English with punctuation provided, as I told you, the Greek of chapter of verses 3 through 10 is one sentence. There's no stop. There's no punctuation. And I was reading it in the other service thinking to myself, I'm getting a little breathless reading this text. I need to stop. But uh, it's, it's that kind of a text. It is like an outpouring of praise. Listen to Paul, the apostle, writing by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is the word of God. The story is told by witnesses of a man in a crowd in a New York City subway station. He was dressed in a suit and a tie, appeared like any other commuter businessman. However, he quickly attracted attention, even though he never raised his voice very much. As he walked through the subway crowd and he was pointing to individuals in the crowd and he said, you're in, you're out, you're chosen. You and you and you are not chosen. You and you are chosen. Obviously, somebody doing that would attract attention. Obviously, people would roll their eyes and think, here's a guy without all his marbles. But as he continued doing that, there was a dual reaction going on, the witnesses said. 
Nobody knew what it meant that you were chosen or not chosen. What did you gain or lose or fail to receive? And probably people thought it meant nothing. But interestingly, as people discussed it, as the man moved on or got on a train, I don't know what he did, but as they were talking about him, the people who had been told, you're chosen, said, well, it made me feel good. I I thought I was going to get something. And those who had been told, you're not chosen, you're out, said that they felt some regret and even anxiety about what might happen, what they would be deprived of. Well, I think that that subway pantomime that had no real meaning to it by that individual, whether he was mentally unbalanced or not, no one knows. But people think that that's what's going on in Ephesians 1.4 that God is arbitrarily and without any reason whatsoever in heaven or hell or earth or wherever, simply arbitrarily choosing people, and that's confusing. And, in fact, it's even hateful to some people to think of God doing that. They say, how could God just choose people willy-nilly, no meaning to it? How could he do that? And they imagine that any of us who would say, well, this is God's word— And we believe he did do what the Word of God says he did. And that while the meaning and reason for it isn't easily apparent to us, nevertheless, God is God and he has his reason. And one day his reasons will be apparent. And people are surprised if we talk at all about this subject of divine election that I spent time on in verse 4 last week and knew that I was only scratching the surface. That we must be smug and proud individuals who think we're really something because God has chosen us. And it's really hard to make them see that quite the opposite is true. That to think that you are included in God's choice of those before the foundation of the world, that he would bring and reveal his salvation in certain people, that it is certainly not a reason for pride or smugness. Quite the opposite. It's It's the cause of great humility and deep pondering the opposite of pride and say, why in the world would God ever single me out? Why would he choose me? Well, I remind you today that we did kind of cover verse 4 of this text. I say that because it it seemed like as I read, I realized, well, I really covered the first half of verse 4 last time. That's how deep the subject is. And I want to pick up with the second half of verse 4 with the concept that's there and move a little bit forward. And I intend to address the rest of this same text from 7 to 10 in another week, Lord willing. I remind you that this is like a doxology of praise. We sung a doxology at the beginning of this service, poured out praise to God. That's what Paul's doing. If he starts with the words, blessed be God, And everything that follows is like this wonderful, outpoured, run-on sentence that he just rolls along as he makes known these wonderful truths of the mysterious plans of God from all eternity. And I want to point out the fact that you might not notice otherwise that in this passage and going down further than I read through verse 13 and 14, we have the entire trinity of God spelled out here for us. Now, there are people who would say there is no trinity. 
That's where the word Unitarian comes from, the idea that God is not three persons. And they would say, well, where do you get that? Well, we have the Father making a choice, making plans. Before time began here, we have the Son putting those plans into effect, as we're told in verses 5 and following. And we have the Holy Spirit, if you come down to verse 13, putting a seal upon the plans of God. I'm not going to preach a sermon on the Trinity today, but I, I want you to see that, that God in his Trinitarian being is evident in this passage. Someone once depicted uh, an illustration of the Trinity that, uh, how do you illustrate the Trinity? Because there's nothing else like it. Anything you use as an illustration is going to be unworthy or somehow too common. But And so that it may be true of what I'm about to say, but this person said, well, he was in the building trades and he said, I think of God the Father as the architect who designs and initiates a structure, a home, a, an office building. I think of God the Son as the expert contractor who comes and builds the structure for what the Father has planned. And I think, he said, of the Holy Spirit as the painter and interior decorator of the building. Well, you may think that's too common a way to speak, but Actually, I think it maybe makes it a little simpler for some minds to, to grapple with a very great concept of the concept of the Trinity. Well, having just noticed that, that God, the triune, his triune being is on display here, I, I just have two main points today. The first one's shorter than the second. And the first point comes from the end of verse 4, the second part of verse 4, and into verse 5. This major principle is here. The ultimate purpose... For being chosen in Christ is to be made holy and blameless before God. The ultimate purpose for being chosen in Christ is to be made holy and blameless before God. That example I gave at the beginning of the man on the subway platform, he had no purpose at all in what he was doing, saying you're chosen, you're not. Totally arbitrary and, and actually totally meaningless because it didn't change anybody's life, didn't accomplish anything. Um, other than maybe in the man's distracted mind. But we're told that God's choice of people to save in eternity that we call divine election had a purpose, a definite, concrete purpose. God had a goal, and that goal is given at the end of verse 4, that we, that is, those who are chosen in Christ, should be holy and blameless before him in his presence that we should be holy and blameless before the presence of God. Now, you've got to remember, we're talking about fallen mankind. You and I are fallen. We're sinful, unavoidably so, since the Garden of Eden. And we're not holy and blameless. God alone is holy and blameless. We're not. But what we're being told here is that God intends in some lives that he in his wisdom and mystery of his will sees fit to work is going to reverse and remedy all the effects of Eden's fall of man. Some of us who are originally fallen and cannot escape it are going to escape it by the working of God in Christ. Something we can't do for ourselves. John 3.8 says the purpose of Jesus, the Son of God coming forth, was to destroy the works of the devil. 
to reverse what happened in the Garden of Eden. Now, human beings are inevitably unholy and blameworthy apart from what Christ does. By the way, stop for a moment over those words. What do they mean? Do they mean exactly the same thing? Actually, they're a little bit different. Holiness refers to the pure and sinless condition of your heart and your mind, the inner person. To be holy is to be without moral blemish, even in your thoughts. Ephesians 5.27 speaks of a goal where God's people might be without a spot or wrinkle or blemish, the inner man where sin dwells, where evil thoughts begin is holiness. Blamelessness is a little different. That deals more with the outer person. If I could possibly be a blameless person, that would mean anybody who knows me in the community or or anywhere, my next-door neighbor, my relatives, my family members, cannot bring any charge against my behavior. There's nothing they could say why I saw him, you know, blow up and cut that motorist off or whatever. No, blamelessness means no fault can be found with my outward behavior. Again, only God himself is holy and blameless. Only God. Now John, 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He's holy, 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 holy. Isaiah had to say, had to hear it three times. Holy, 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 angelic beings said. By emphasis, something had to be said three times. Can I make myself holy? Well, you say, maybe somewhere on earth out of all the billions of people, there'd be somebody who could obey the Ten Commandments, not only outwardly in behavior, but even inwardly in thought, so that we not only didn't commit adultery, but we didn't even... As Jesus said, you break the commandment if you lust after a woman. Is somebody holy enough to say that they have perfectly made their inward character without fault? I just would like you to bring the person to me and introduce him because he would probably glow in the dark if he even existed. You can't do it. In order to be holy and blameless, you need a great transformation of yourself inwardly, and outwardly. Not only that God's eye couldn't see any fault in you, but society and your neighbors couldn't either. And I certainly know I'm not blameless and I'm not holy other than by the work of Christ in me. So secondly, with that in mind as the goal God is moving towards in in his election of somebody, let's look at uh, at least some of how he starts accomplishing this and this will flow right into next time as well. Ephesians 1.5 says God doesn't choose people because of what they already are, but what he knows he's going to make them to be, what they can become as they are joined in solidarity, belonging to Jesus Christ. So our second point says this, glory that belongs to Jesus, the beloved son, will be shared with God's adopted sons and daughters. Ephesians 1.5 brings us this important New Testament word, adoption. It's one of a variety, a collection of words that describe the salvation of God. The salvation that God brings an individual is so rich it needs a lot of words to describe it. Next time I hope we're going to see in verse 7 
the word redemption. I'm not even mentioning that today other than to say we hope to deal with it. But you could think of other words, justification, new birth, sanctification, glorification. The New Testament has a whole collection of words that describe salvation. It's as if salvation is a great diamond, one of these enormous diamonds. Every once in a while you see a picture, there was one in the paper I think not too long ago, of a really large, unusual diamond that was sold for millions of dollars. It was, looked like it was nearly the size of my fist. Imagine that one, ladies. Would you like that on an engagement ring? You wouldn't be able to pick your hand up. You would have this goose egg you had to walk around with, worth so much money you, you would dare not go anyplace with it. But adoption is one of the facets of the gem of salvation that Paul opens up here. And by the way, he's the primary New Testament writer who does stress adoption. He also stresses justification in Galatians and Romans. But here he's speaking about adoption. And you might think of what that means. I think most of us know what it means to be adopted. Probably some of you here in the room are adopted or you have adopted children. It's not so uncommon. I think of the principle as it was developed in Roman law. If you wanted to go back to an older movie, I guess you've got to be a senior citizen to remember. You know, you know it's time for me to retire when all my illustrations are too old for half the congregation to remember. But uh, remember the movie, Ben-Hur, dramatic Hollywood blockbuster. I think for many years it was the movie that had the most Academy Awards of any, the great chariot race. You remember Charlton Heston as Judah Ben-Hur, a Jewish aristocrat who through an accident uh, was arrested and put in slavery, made a galley slave on a Roman military boat, and they got into a battle in which... uh, Somehow the slaves got free and the general, uh, the Roman general, was in the water drowning and going to die. And Judah Ben-Hur, the Jew who had no reason to want to help a general, helped the Roman general and saved his life. And the general rewarded Judah Ben-Hur by making him his adopted son with the privileges of a Roman citizen, the privileges of inheriting the estate, living in comfort and riches and privilege. Well, that's something of what adoption is trying to say here as it applies to people who are as good as galley slaves as far as their, their moral and spiritual life goes. We have nothing that we can claim, but God comes and says, I've written down your name. I've adopted you. I've chosen you. I'm not telling you why. You may find out in somewhere in, in eternity future when you're with me face to face, but Right now, you just have to accept it. I'm adopting you. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That's what Christians are, John was saying. In Romans eight seventeen, Paul adds some words about it there when he says, If we are children of God, we are his heirs, and we are joint heirs with Christ. We inherit the things that Christ has and what Christ is. Astonishing statement. Ephesians 1.6 says that the wonderful blessing of being chosen by God leads to his miraculous work in you so that you are actually becoming holy and blameless, and in fact, you are declared as such that should you face God today in an hour 
not expecting it at all, that's how you would be evaluated. Even though you're still a sinner, you know, the theologian has a nice Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, at the same time, righteous and a sinner. We still sin, and yet we're declared righteous, just in the sight of God. And Paul says here in Ephesians 1.6, these things are put into effect by our relationship to the Beloved. I, I must admit, I don't think I ever noticed that too much before as I scanned and read this passage and have studied this passage. I never noticed before that here is, is as far as I know, somebody tell me if you find out differently, and I, I could be wrong, that this is the only place where Christ is referred to by that singular statement calling him the Beloved. And you notice that Paul didn't explain who he was talking about. He knew that his readers would know who the Beloved is. There was only one Beloved, the same one who appears in John 3.16 when we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, the only one he had, his only son, not one son among many, the only son he gave him. We receive these blessings of election and adoption because of what the one called the Beloved has done. This can't mean anyone but Jesus Christ. And the people that received this letter knew who it meant. They knew that it was by the wondrous power and status of our elder brother Jesus Christ that sonship becomes a wonderful thing when you're a son or daughter adopted by God. It all derives from him and who he is and what he did. We are not taught here, notice, never are we taught in the Bible that we will become gods and goddesses. There are cults that teach that. If you're in a group that's teaching that you're going to be a god and goddess in heaven or an angel in heaven, the Bible teaches none of those things, run in the opposite direction. You're being taught false doctrine. And there are very large cults that do teach that. But you are a new creation in Christ. Blamelessness and holiness are now your adornments to wear in the sight of God. And when you are judged on the final day of earth, the Bible says we shall be like him when we see him as he is. The glory of Christ the beloved will be in us in some way. Hard to define that, hard to spell that out in a concrete illustration, but somehow if you could think of yourself as holding a a large mirror to the noonday bright sun and imagine a hundred thousand people or a hundred million people holding a mirror, that's what we're talking about. We will mirror the shining excellency of Christ the Beloved at the final day. And the full glory of it will only really become clear in that way. You know, if you've ever been in dramas in school or, or if you're a person who likes the theater, you go to Fulton Opera House or you go to live presentations, you, you know how it goes at a play or at the end of a musical. You know, they've done the last song or the last act, the curtain closes, then the curtain opens and out come the minor players with the bid parts and you clap, clap, clap and out come more people with a little more important speaking parts, clap, 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 
and then the more important people come and the clapping gets louder and then maybe the audience stands because out comes the leading lady and the leading man and everybody's on their feet. Yay! Wonderful! Great show! Well, maybe it's a tawdry illustration. I don't know. But I think God is planning a finale that we're going to be part of. And he's going to call us on stage and somehow the angels of heaven are going to behold this amazing experiment that God has been doing with people he chose from planet Earth to receive the wonderful, miraculous renovation from sin and guilt and shame into holiness and blamelessness so they can stand before the holy God and not be struck dead. And they come on stage and we all come on stage and the stage has hundreds of millions of people and then comes who? The beloved and the angels of heaven break into a rapture to worship the beloved who has assembled his cast of men and women that God decided to present as proof to the evil one that his love and his grace and his holiness can be triumphant over all the things that have been done to ruin humanity. And the applause and the grace that will shine forth will be amazing. Am I just making this up? Romans 8, 19 says that the creation awaits. The creation, the created order, forests, mountains, seas, await with eager anticipation the revealing of the sons of God. I have always loved the the phrasing of J.B. Phillips in his paraphrase New Testament when he says there at that verse, creation stands on tiptoe awaiting the revealing of God's people. Wow. We're going to be on stage. Not because we're great. Not because we did anything to counteract the fall of the Garden of Eden. We only cooperated with it until the grace and the work and the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the awakening of his Holy Spirit that turned us to be like the beloved went to work on us. And then we can say in a related passage, 2 Peter 3, 13 says, Our soul and body one day in the final revelation of everything, the final remaking of heaven and earth, It says there that we will enter, quote, the new heaven and the new earth. And it says also we will enter what Peter there called the glorious liberty of the children of God. I can't imagine it. I cannot imagine it. The glorious liberation of the children of God, free finally from all taints of sin and temptation and anger and Warfare, violence, all the sin that we have to confess every week. We, we keep thinking of new ways to, to phrase and write our joint prayers of prof- confession. And maybe you say, well, you don't even touch on the things I would put in. Well, it's pretty hard to think of all the things that people have to confess. But think of when those will all be gone. Because we will have been remade in the image of the Beloved. Jesus Christ, that will be the final accomplishment of the love of God. A number of years ago, I had somebody come and make a fairly severe 
critique of me in which they said, you know, I've heard you preach for years. And they said, you almost never preach about the love of God. Wow, I mean, that, that's a pretty heavy-duty in, indictment. I never preach about the love of God. Well, what they were saying, I think, is that I didn't preach about it in the terms in which they wanted to hear. The idea that God, you know, is sort of this kindly grandfather, and he has this warm sympathy for all men and women, no matter what they do, uh, you know, he's understanding, and he pats them on the head and says, they're there now, I love you, don't worry, take a big hug, you're okay just the way you are. No, I don't preach about that because it's not in the Bible, not anywhere. People will want to say, you know people who preach and all they ever preach about is the love of God, but it's the love of God without the incarnation of the Son of God, without a cross, without a Roman whip, without iron nails, without, you know, blood, innocent blood being shed on Calvary, without the cold, somber atmosphere of a tomb with a dead body in it, They want to leave all that out and still talk about the love of God. You can't do it. Paul is saying here that there's no expression of the love of God apart from our union with Christ, the beloved. All that he is and all that God worked through him in history applied to us. That's the love of God, not a warm, gooey, sentimental, God loves everybody no matter what they do. Nonsense. He doesn't. He really doesn't. God loves those who come under his love given to mankind in Jesus Christ. It's God's beloved dying for us that lets us discover the only true measure of his ultimate love. God calls a people to himself who at the end of time will shine forth holy, blameless, like Jesus himself, with a glory that belongs to Christ the Son. The question is always, will you be among them? Will you be among the saints who take a bow on history's final stage? Not because you put on a great performance, not because you obeyed the Ten Commandments 98.5% of the time, but because your life reflects the absorbed glory of the work of Jesus Christ, the beloved, God's beloved. He makes all the difference. I pray that all your hopes and all your imaginations are rooted in him. More to say next time. Father, we marvel this poured out praise coming from Paul here in Ephesians 1. Just rolls out of him as he's speaking about your grace being worked out in what Jesus did. Father, help us to never think about facing you in eternity or being examined after our death apart from what we are made by belonging to Jesus. And if we seek that, if we know that, hesitant as we are, stained as we are, imperfect as we feel we are, we are in Christ. What a great thing. Thank you for your marvelous design of salvation. 
We ask that you apply it and encourage your people even today. In Jesus' name, amen.